1: Well, thank you so much for sticking with us and joining us as well on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron. Carol Zerniol, our co-host, is on special assignment, so it will be just moi. And it's a delight for me to welcome on our Caregiver SOS hotline, Dr. Leslie Kernison, who is the creator of HelpingOlderParents.com. And she joins us now from right out in San Francisco, Dr. Kernison.
2: Yes, San Francisco.
1: What a great place to be. It's good to talk with you, and thanks for giving us your time. Sure, thank you for having me. You're a graduate of uh, Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine, and I mentioned to you, I I got my undergraduate degree there. Uh, I grew up in Cleveland. Your stepfather lives in Cleveland. You spent some time there.
2: Uh, Yes, I spent uh, um, actually just two years there for medical school because during the second part of medical school I went to Detroit, for a uh, special um, primary care program.
1: You sure know how to pick cities? Uh, you really pick cities in the Rust Belt, let me tell you.
2: Yep. And then I came out to San Francisco to do my uh, my residency um, in internal medicine here at the University of California, San Francisco, UCSF. Right.
1: right. And you stayed?
2: And then I stayed, yeah. I stayed and um, did a year of extra training in geriatrics and also um, a few years of a research fellowship.
1: It's interesting because if you were to line up a 100 med school graduates and say, okay, everyone who wants to go into geriatrics, raise your hand. The only one up would be yours.
2: Uh, Yeah. There are not so many people choosing to go into geriatrics right now, unfortunately.
1: And yet it's a growth industry. We're all getting older. Uh,
2: it's it is, it is, but um, it uh, hasn't quite um, taken off yet, uh, but the good thing is that there's, um, there was an Institute of Medicine report in 2008 called Retooling for an Aging America, and not only did they say that we needed to train more geriatricians, but they sort of strongly urged for everybody involved in healthcare to get some geriatrics training. And so, geriatrics is the art and science of uh, really modifying healthcare so that it works better for older adults. That's
3: and a really still, good when point. When I was in
2: medical school, we weren't required to take geriatrics rotations, even though we're all required to take pediatrics rotations. And um, most of us won't necessarily work with children. Um, so, now there's increasingly uh, a push to bring geriatrics into the curriculum for all medical students. And uh, to bring more of it into the curriculum for internal medicine residents. And so I think that will help because I forget just what is the number of geriatricians we have right now. But um, at this point, most people uh, who might be old enough or frail enough to see a geriatrician won't be able to see one. So it's really important that we take what we know and do in our field and bring it to other um, people to an, um, use there's an, and apply when they're providing care to older adults.
1: There's an important lesson there that that most of us don't really think about, it, and that is there are differences in uh, older people and people not so old in terms of how they respond to disease, how they respond to medication, how they respond to uh, anesthesia, uh, and those differences are areas in which geriatricians become experts. Is that not true? Yeah.
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I mean, people often ask me how old should I be before I see a geriatrician. And, um, and, uh, and I say, well, it's not really so much about your particular age. Um, it's more that, uh, you know, uh, would you benefit from having your health care changed in some way? And the things that um, sort of bring up this need for modifying the health care, you know, the very first one is just that people become more vulnerable in their bodies and minds, and that starts honestly when people are in their 60s. They already become noticeably more vulnerable to the side effects or even intended effects of certain medications. People start to have multiple chronic illnesses that might interact. Um, People might develop chronic uh, impairments of their body or, again, of their mind, especially cognitive impairments. They might end up having problems that we see in older people like falls or chronic pain or depression. And these are problems that younger people experience as well. But in older adults, they're more likely to be due to a sort of combination of multiple things coming together along with, you know, an aging body or mind in different ways. Um, and then also as people get older, they tend to have somebody chronically involved in their health care and life care. So all of those, um, and those are all things that can happen uh, to people earlier in life, and there are some younger people who have a lot of chronic illness or disability who might have all those things happening to them at a much younger age. Um, but what you want is healthcare that sort of uh, takes that into account, and that's what we've learned to do um, in geriatrics. And so one of the things that I feel very strongly about is that you shouldn't have to see a geriatrician to get care that has made some modifications for those things that happen when you're older. I mean, you shouldn't have to see a geriatrician for your healthcare team to think, oh, you know, given that you're 65 or 70, maybe we need to be a little bit more careful about the dose of medication that we give you.
1: Or medications um, we shouldn't give you.
2: Well, exactly, and the American Geriatric Society actually uh, every year, um, no, excuse me, not every year, they reissue it every few years, and it has just been updated uh, in the fall of 2015, but they have a list called the Beers Criteria of medications that older adults should um, avoid or use with caution. And uh, so there is this long list of medications that we know... Um, just tend to often have side effects or risks that means that they have to be used more carefully or potentially not at all. Whereas when you're younger, you have just a lot more physical resilience to tolerate um, effects and side effects. So there's this list of medications and it's called the Beer's List. And um, And I often see that even people who are in their 70s or 80s might be taking medications on this list and it's there in the public domain. But... Um, But unfortunately, a lot of doctors, you know, unless they've been trained in geriatrics, may not necessarily think of um, checking the list or be familiar with the list.
1: If you've just joined us, you're listening to Caregiver SOS on air. I'm Ron Aaron. Our special guest, Dr. Leslie Kernison, is the creator of HelpingOlderParents.com, and we're talking with her on our Caregiver SOS hotline. Carol Zernial, our co-host, is on special assignment today. Uh, Dr. Kernison, if you... Talk about that list a little bit more, if you don't mind. Uh, what are some of the medications on the beers list that folks who are listening or caregivers listening uh, may actually be giving to their patients?
2: Um, so uh, all the um, sedatives and tranquilizers are um, on the list, and um Many medications that are in a class called anticholinergic medications, they're sort of medications that, again, tend to cause some drowsiness, Um, and uh, when you're younger, you might just maybe feel a little drowsy, but when you're older, that can actually cloud the thinking. If you already are having some memory problems, that can can make it worse.
1: I know Benadryl Um, is one of the drugs on that list. Exactly.
2: Benadryl is one of them, and... um, and actually, helping older com was created as a sister site to my website, geriatricsforcaregivers.net, uh, which was a website I created because I wanted to share um, what we know in geriatrics uh, with the general public. And so on Geriatrics for Caregivers earlier this fall, I have an article that was. Uh, four types of um, brain slowing medication to avoid if you're concerned about memory, and that kind of goes into that um, those medications which are on the Beers list. But people can also just Google um, Beers list medications, and that will probably take them to Healthandaging.org, which is the um, the health information website maintained by the American Geriatric Society. And so they can look at the list there um, as well.
1: Oh, that's cool. So. And yeah. and you do a blog, as you mentioned, Geriatrics for Caregivers blog, mm-hmm. uh, which should provide all kinds of help. But I want to pick up something that uh, was in the bio that uh, we picked up off your website, which really okay. caught my attention. Uh, and you said that, uh, I realized how many family caregivers are looking for health information online. And, and it made yes. me chuckle because the other day, my uh, little German shepherd was limping and I Looked up on Google what makes German Shepherds limp. And right. my God, she came down with uh, on Google. Uh, I thought it was the end of her life. And she's only four or five. So I walk into the clinic and I say to my, my vet, who's just a really nice, nice lady, I said, Hey, uh, you know, I think Lucy is, is at the end of a rope. Uh, she's been limping. And I looked up what she has and she laughed and she said, You gotta quit going to Dr. Google. He doesn't know.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And it turned out she had a sprained elbow. No big deal.
4: Mm-hmm. I was yeah. afraid
1: to death just from looking up on uh, Google what it might be. And you find people doing that uh, for their loved ones.
2: I do. I mean, I think it's, you know, um, it's become for people who have the Internet. And uh, the Pew, um, Pew Research Group has done a lot of studies of um, people. Uh, what people do online related to health. And they found that family caregivers, in particular, are often quite active online in looking for information. Um, so uh, whether we like it or not, that's where people are going to go, um, which is why I think it's important that, um, that we create some really uh, good quality, careful, thoughtful sites where people can um, get information So, um, just for healthcare in general, I really like the Mayo Clinic's website. Um, Very sound, sensible uh, information. And then for information specific to older adults, um, there is healthinaging.org. Say that again? Healthinaging.org.
1: All right, healthinaging.org.
2: Yes, and that is um, supported and sponsored by the American Geriatrics. Um, society. All right, now hold and that so thought. Awesome. We're going to
1: come right back to you. we got a little business to sure. do at our end. And uh, it's a delight talking with you, Dr. Leslie Kernison. Uh, she's a graduate of Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine, the UC Berkeley School of Public Health, and we're talking with her about aging and medicine for folks who are aging. She is a geriatrician, helpingolderparents.com, one of her websites, and a whole lot more that she's involved in. I'm Ron Aaron. Carol Zernial on special assignment. You're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 930 AM, The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron, and one of the things I'm most pleased about being a well-med patient is the way in which I'm treated by all the staff at the clinic I go to. And Dr. Robin Eikoff, that's not by accident.
3: No, it's not. We really spend a lot of time training our staff and asking them to really connect with the patients and get to know them because we consider them part of our clinic home.
1: And the other thing that's really impressive to me is the amount of time My WellMed physician spends with me, and you do the same thing with your patients. Yeah,
3: I I really do try to, and and we do a lot, a lot more time than your typical uh, provider can afford to give. And I think that allows us to get to know the whole patient and not just their diseases.
1: That's cool. Don't have a lot of time to talk about prevention, but you do a lot of that as well.
3: We spend an enormous amount of time on preventative measures.
1: Want information about WellMed? Want to be a WellMed patient? Call 210-614-WELL. 210 614 Well. We are having the best conversation with Dr. Leslie Kernison uh, talking about aging and helping older parents, something that she is very interested in. And we were talking about uh, ways in which you can get information uh, and websites. Uh, that may be useful because we know people are going to go to the Internet anyhow. And, and of course, Dr. Karnison, the problem with, with the Internet, uh, you don't really know that the site you've gone to, uh, unless it's like the Mayo Clinic, uh, is accurate, vetted, edited. Uh, who knows what's on there?
2: Yeah, I mean, um, there are some ways that um, people can tell. I mean, I think the the first thing is to just, uh, when you come to a new site, is to take a look at it and ask yourself, well, uh, who's writing it, who's reviewing it, and can I trust it? And um, so generally, there is a section on the site, there'll be a tab that says About, and I encourage people to take a look at the About page and see sort of who uh, you know who's responsible for the information. And so if you were to go To um, Right now, my main site with health information is geriatricsforcaregivers.net, and if you go to the about part and read about me, you'll see that uh, I have a medical degree. Um, So, I'm an MD that that I trained at the University of California, San Francisco, that I'm board certified. Um, And then also, um, within my articles, I usually link to research articles or other authoritative content to support the points that I make. And I always try to offer people lots of options to sort of get more information. Um, So um, now it's true that I'm, you know, I'm an individual doctor. I'm not representing um, my institution or a large organization. Um, And um, sites run by large uh, institutions are often quite trustworthy. On the other hand, uh, I write on my own just because that allows me to write about things a little bit faster. And, you know, it's sort of informed um, my informed opinion with lots of uh, links to research to um, sort of help people understand that it's not just it's not just my opinion, um, but I do rely on what's uh, the sort of um, best known evidence in geriatrics.
1: Now, do you Um, miss seeing patients?
2: Excuse me?
1: Do you miss seeing patients?
2: Well, you know, I do see patients, actually. Um, I have a small consultative practice um, uh, here in the Bay Area, so I do work with older adults and families one-on-one. Oh, cool. Um, and I do that about one day a week. Um, and then I do do some teaching at UCSF. Um, I'm still affiliated with the Division of Geriatrics. Um and uh, and then I do sort of um, correspond with people through the blog and respond to people's comments. So I, I feel like I'm still um,
1: you keep connected your in
2: with uh, older adults and their families. but it's true that this is a time right now where um, where uh, I'm not spending most of my time practicing. Um, but uh, that's okay for now. I have young children, and so this this works well with that. but also hmm.
1: um, how old are you? time I
2: went? Well, right now there's seven and a half and five. But um, from the time I went to medical school, I was interested in making primary care better and also in practicing. And I always knew that I was going to combine part-time practice with something else.
1: Well, you reach more people with the writing and outreach that you do than you do seeing patients one-on-one.
2: Well, exactly. And um, And so earlier I was mentioning the Institute of Medicine report on how everybody needs to have some, you know, training in how to um, improve the health of older adults. And so family caregivers, and they were actually mentioned in the Institute of Medicine report that family that it was essential to consider family caregivers part of the healthcare team. And of course, you know, each individual um, uh, person is also a key part of their own healthcare team. Um, and um, so it's really important that we um that we help people understand their health and how to improve it. And so when it comes to the health of older adults, I strongly feel that we need more information that's grounded in our knowledge base as geriatricians, and it needs to be available to older adults and to their family members. And um, so when I was a research fellow, sort of studying ways to improve the quality of care for older adults, I came across um, a bigger website for family caregivers called Caring.com, And I thought, wow, we could use the internet to teach geriatrics to family caregivers um, and sort of help equip them to ask better questions of their regular doctors who are probably not going to be geriatricians. And so the work I'm doing now is kind of um, an outgrowth of that. And I find it really, uh, I find that I really like writing about what I know and do and trying to translate it into information that is useful and helpful to older adults in their
1: family. That's a really good point, because most of us, I happen to be uh, 73, and mm-hmm. uh, I can remember as my folks, both deceased now, but as they aged, they just stayed with the same doc they'd had when they were in their 40s and 50s, uh, and uh, the needs they had were very different than what that doctor was used to dealing with. Right.
2: Yeah. No, it's true, and I mean, I think... We are, you know, at this interesting moment in healthcare where there's a lot of change going on, and a lot of, you know, and there's a certain amount of change going on in the doctor-patient relationship, um, especially for people who are uh, much older and of a certain generation. They're really used to, you know, the doctor tells you what to do and is the expert, and you kind of cooperate. Um, but what we've learned about healthcare for everybody, especially for older people. Um, is that often there are many different ways um, that we could proceed with the medical care and the health care, and that there's no obvious right answer. And so ideally, you want to pick a course that's a good fit with what's most important to um, the person and what fits in best with their lifestyle and their needs. And so so ideally, it would be more of a partnership. Um, But to do that, um, you need patients and families who um, are are interested in participating, and many people are, and other people are feeling tired or overwhelmed or sick, and just, you know, it's work also to participate. You know, that's
1: a really good point because, uh, and I don't put doctors on pedestals. I never have, but lots of folks my age and older do, and whatever the doctor says is, like, word from God, and uh, they don't question.
2: Right. And doctors can be wrong. Yeah, I mean, um, some of it will be wrong in that it's really, you know, if you kind of line it up against our resources on what's best, you know, likely best care for an older person with this, you know, kind of situation, some of it will be wrong in terms of that. And then other times, you know, it's not that it's wrong, but that there were other options that the patient never heard about. And so, for instance, um, depression, which is a very, you know, common problem that affects people of all ages, but also older adults. Um, you can treat depression with medication, but it's also um, just as good as a first-line approach if it's mild to moderate depression to treat with therapy.
1: Talk therapy. Um,
2: and But many people aren't informed of that option by their doctors because for various reasons the doctor may have gotten used to just starting off with some medication treatment. And so in an ideal scenario, you would hear about the different possibilities, at least the major ones, um, and and you, the patient, would get to be involved in that choice instead of it just kind of defaulting to whatever the doctor is used to getting. Now,
1: them. are the medications generally used to treat depression on the beers list, or are they safe and efficacious for seniors?
2: Um, the medications um, that are known as SSRIs, um, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, uh, are generally um, okay for seniors. Um Although they've actually studied it, and the ones that um, are most effective and have least side effects in older adults are uh, sertraline, the brand name is Zoloft, and um, citalopram, the brand name is Alexa, although now you have to use it at lower doses. Um, So again, the Prozac is often the best known one. It was the first one. Right. Um, that came out in the 90s, but Prozac has a lot more interactions with other medications, and older adults tend to be taking other medications. Um, and then Paxil is um, more anticholinergic. And so, so, again, if you haven't done your homework, you, you might go into the doctor, and they might just pick Prozac. They might not have sort of read up on the latest research, on which of that class of medication is least likely to have drug interactions and side effects in people who are in their sixties, seventies, eighties. And they might not even tell you that, well, you know, actually therapy um, you know often works equally well.
1: Well what does um, anti-cholineric mean? Uh,
2: anticholinergic mean? Um, anticholinergic is uh, it technically means a chemical property and um There's a neurotransmitter in the body that's called acetylcholine, and it's in the brain and often other parts of the body. And people with Alzheimer's disease, um, they think they need more of it, which is why the drugs that are most often used in Alzheimer's, like the Nepazil, the brand name is Aricept, is a cholinesterase inhibitor and meant to increase that acetylcholine in the brain. Um, But many drugs that are anticholinergic actually block it a little bit. And so that's actually the sort of comical irony that we see in my field is that we'll see older adults who, with dementia who both are on Aricept and are still being given something anticholinergic, perhaps for their um, overactive bladder or for some other problem. And, and, and those are actually hmm. kind of at odds in a way in the brain. A physician so,
1: a friend of mine uh, commented once that the Aricept is really given because it makes the caregiver feel better. It really doesn't do much.
2: Yeah, well there's been yeah there's been a lot written about it. Um, I mean the sort of, you know, the the um, uh generally what they have found is that it seems like it doesn't have a lot of an effect in many people, potentially most people. Or maybe the effect is small. It's possible that there's a kind of minority of people for whom it works better and we have difficulty ahead of time finding out who that is. Um, and, uh, so one approach, um, which is often used by geriatricians is, you know, to first of all, let people know that, that often it seems to not have much meaningful effect. All right. Hold and that thought. We, is,
1: hold that thought. We're going to come right back to you. We're sure. talking with Dr. Leslie a uh, physician out in San Francisco who specializes as a geriatrician in providing help and counsel and support uh, for families and seniors and for aging parents through a variety of media, including blogs and websites, and we'll give you more information about that coming up just as well. I'm Ron Aaron Carol Zirniel. Our co-host is on special assignment today. We're delighted to be with you on 930 AM, The Answer. We're talking about issues that affect seniors and how a geriatrician can play a role in helping. And it turns out, Dr. Kernison, I've pronounced your name 40 different ways for which I apologize. Oh, that's all right. Looks like it should have an extra vowel somewhere.
2: People often try to insert an extra vowel, but it is Kernison.
1: Boy, if this was, uh, yeah. We we need Vanna to put another vowel in there.
2: Right, exactly.
1: (laughs) So talk to me a bit about... uh, again, the various media websites and blogs and other help that you're providing for folks and the kind of information that they can get about not only aging, but seniors?
2: Well, um, so yeah, so my uh, my main website is geriatricsforcaregivers.net, and the idea there was to provide just um, kind of practical information on how we in geriatrics might evaluate and manage a lot of common uh, health concerns that come up for older adults, such as um, uh, medications, kind of avoiding unnecessary medications or realizing when a medication might be risky, falls, memory concerns, how we get started diagnosing dementia, um, you know, some about end-of-life care and so forth. And... um, and I am going to be starting a podcast, actually, um, related to that called Better Health While Aging. Um, and so I'll be starting that in, uh, in January. But I did start, you know, um, a sort of sister website called helpingolderparents.com. And that was because even though, uh, even though I know that many older adults can benefit from getting healthcare that uses some of what we know and do in, geri- in geriatrics, um, you know, this sort of health care that's modified to better fit right. with what happens as people get older. I also know that most people don't know what geriatrics is. They don't search for it. And even as they're struggling or worried about an older relative, they don't necessarily think that it's a health problem. And what I need is health care that's specially modified for my older parents because they may not even realize that the health care they're getting uh, isn't quite right. Um, instead, you know, what people think is, what am I going to do about my mom, or, or you know, I'm worried, or how do I help, how do I help out my, my older parents? And um, so, so I thought, well, you know, let me, let me try to address the question when it comes that way. And one of the things that's really interesting and wonderful about being a geriatrician, a doctor specialized for older adults, is that there's so much more to it than the medical care and the health care. Um, because the health and well-being of older adults is sort of deeply connected to what kind of um, what kind of environment that they live in and who's around who's helping them and um, and how um, getting you know health care that sort of um, optimizes uh, your your health problems and your ability to do things for yourself can make a difference on where you're able to live and how you're able to live and um, so um, so I thought it would it would be fun to have a website called HelpingOlderParents.com dot com where we could sort of touch on all these complementary areas of expertise like housing and family dynamics and um, uh technologies you know there are increasing technologies for older adults and um and their families um so I haven't launched it yet as a full blog, but I did create this quick start guide which is uh, what people find right now if they go to helpingolderparents.com. Um, and, and I created the guide because when I thought about the questions that people were asking me, you know, like, should my mom still be living at home alone, um, I found that for me to answer that question, whether I was answering it kind of casually at a party um, or on the blog or as part of a consultation one-on-one in the Bay Area, is I found... I thought to myself, and I thought, well, you know, what I always do is kind of go through a kind of mental list of, you know, are there are there major problems or, you know, what are the problem areas um, for the older person? And that that's part of how I know what kind of help they might need and also what might be the underlying health problems that are driving the concerns because, you know, we often think about aging problems as separate from health problems, but almost everything that causes families to worry about an older relative at some level tracks back to an underlying health problem. Um, And I do see that often families actually um, uh, kind of rush right ahead into problem-solving a smaller problem. And so if you have an older person who's been living at home and maybe has been developing memory problems, they might arrange meal drop-offs and unplug the stove and, and do all these things and meanwhile the person hasn't had the full evaluation for, um, for their memory and maybe their memory is being made worse by their medications or maybe they have an undiagnosed thyroid problem. I mean, um, there, are, there are things that, that should be looked for so that we can think about how to, um, to, to optimize the health so it can be the best it can be. And also understanding what's underlying a problem for an older person gives us a lot of information about what to expect for the future, because we don't just want to try to cobble together a solution for now. We want to think about, you know, what kinds of problems or declines should we expect over the next few years, and how can we anticipate them or prevent Mm. them or be equipped to respond? You know, what's, um, all of those things are easier to do when you've, kind of thought about the underlying um, health issues, at
1: least for me. Let me remind folks who are listening to us that we are talking with Dr. Leslie Kernison, creator of a variety of websites and blogs and soon to be a podcaster, and we'll get you information on that as well. I'm Ron Aaron. You're listening to Caregiver SOS on air. And Dr. Mm -hmm. Kernison, you have, again, in your little bio on your website, I love this comment about... Uh, launching that, com, uh, helping boomers who are worried about aging parents. Now, boomers, uh, 10,000 a day or 10,000 a day across this country are turning 65. They're old as well by some measures. How old are their parents?
2: Well, their parents, um, I mean, uh, 20 I years older. Right so? now, boomers are, are 49 to 69. You know, I right. kind of think 50 to 70. Uh, right now, and so yeah, they're 20 to 30 years older, hmm. um, so for some they might, you know, some of those parents might be in their early 70s, and some are in their 90s or, you know, even older.
1: They could share a geriatrician.
2: Uh, <laughs> well, you know, I think, I think it's just so important, given there are so few geriatricians, to really right. um, like separate geriatrics from geriatricians. I think bloomers and their parents can benefit from geriatrics. I think, honestly, if you're aged, you know, 60 or older, um, within our knowledge base about, um, you know, protecting. Because a lot of what we do is actually try to um, remove the harms of too much medical care and health care. Because health care is in many ways a wonderful thing. And usually, it has some burden or risk or side effect, and and sometimes as people are older, they're getting a lot of healthcare that is creating a certain amount of burden or risk for not that much benefit. Um, so, um, so I think it's just benefit beneficial, excuse me, for um, older adults, whether they're the young old, you know, which are sometimes the people who are like. 55 to you know people define it um, in different ways, but sometimes you know they say that older adults there's the young old, the middle old, and the old old, or sometimes it's younger old and older old, but um, but I think even the the um, uh, younger um, uh, older people, so we'll say people in their 60s um, and onward uh, can benefit from um, from what we know. So um, so I do write. Uh, I did start. My initial blog, for Family Caregivers, and the reason for that was that I felt that was if if somebody else is worried about you and looking online, um, then that person is more likely to have reached, um, to either be struggling with memory problems or have a certain kind of load of health and life problems Mm -hmm. um, that makes the information especially relevant. But if I write an article saying, here are several medications that we know worsen thinking in people who have dementia or having memory problems and they've been shown to be linked to developing dementia or accelerating dementia. If you if you read that for your mother who's in her mid eighties and you've been worried about her memory, you can still also look at it and think, huh, well maybe for me myself at age sixty I should, you know, think about avoiding those, or if a doctor tries to prescribe it, I should ask some extra questions and ask, are there alternatives? What's the lowest dose? Because often there are alternatives, or a lower dose is possible, and you might not find that out unless you ask extra questions.
1: Well, without asking you to jump all over your colleagues in the medical profession, do you find that uh, folks in practice who, uh, as they age and they're patient's age, practice cookie-cutter medicine, oh, you got this, I'll give you this, and don't think much about it?
2: Um, Yeah, there is some of that. I mean, I really feel for people who um, are in regular practice. I was actually the medical director for, for a year of a community clinic for older adults. And the Over
1: 60 Health Center.
2: The Over 60 Health Center. And, um, you know, we ended up with this primary care system where most providers have to see people really quickly and um so yeah they're not given a lot of time to think through things carefully they're not given a lot of time to to go through that process of explaining to patients what alternative options are and figuring out what's the best fit for the person so um i think it's understandable mm-hmm. that they you know they kind of do what's um what's fast
1: that's a nice um, difference uh i, I uh, uh, I'm a patient at WellMed Medical Management and uh-huh. WellMed Charitable Foundation underwrites this show. Uh, and their commitment is to not only prevention, but uh, to limit the number of patients that their physicians see to assure them more time with each patient.
2: Well, I think that's such a wonderful um, idea. And, you I mean, you sound very fortunate to be a patient there. And I do often tell people that... Um, that rather than looking, you know, specifically for a geriatrician, you know, look for a clinic where they'll give you more time with the clinicians. And there are more and more um, now primary care clinics that are being set up as senior clinics, um, where the team is kind of looking out for some of these common problems in older adults, like falls and medication side effects.
1: Well, that's true they, at Wellmed. They the, see uh, the
2: doctors get more time.
1: Yeah, the Wellmed also, patients.
2: make
1: a huge difference. Well, med patients are all Medicare eligible, and and they do a tremendous amount of screening when you first come in, and every year Uh they do an analysis. Uh, They look at depression. They look at uh, uh, addiction. They look at fall prevention. They look Uh at uh, peripheral neuropathy, uh, lack of feeling in your legs and extremities, all kinds of stuff that's pretty common among some older folks. So, yes, I I feel pretty lucky to be a well-med patient.
2: Yeah, we got yeah, a minute. got like a about a minute left. A, a clinic has been uh, set up that way. Got about, yeah. a, okay.
1: got about a minute left. And tell us for folks who want to get a hold of you or get more information, what would be the best one-stop shopping?
2: Uh, the best one-stop shopping right now um, is uh, well, they can they can go to helpingolderparents.com. That would be one, or they could go to geriatrics for caregivers net um and i'll soon have a little tab there that says podcast and oh, there'll cool. be a little notice about the coming soon podcast
1: yeah, i look forward to hearing oh. those i want to thank yeah. you so much for coming on we really appreciate uh your time dr dr leslie Kernison, and uh we look forward to talking to you again in the future thanks
2: okay well thank you so much for having me you
1: take care bye-bye dr leslie bye-bye. Kernison. who uh knows a whole lot about not only geriatrics as a geriatrician, but trying to help older folks. We thank you for joining us on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron. Carol Zerniel on special assignment, our regular co-host. In just a moment, Take 10 with Dr. Jamie Heisman. I'm Ron Aaron, and one of the things I'm most pleased about being a well-med patient is the way in which I'm treated by all the staff at the clinic I go to. And Dr. Robin Eickhoff, that's not by accident.
3: No, it's not. We really spend a lot of time training our staff and asking them to really connect with the patients and get to know them because we consider them part of our clinic home.
1: And the other thing that's really impressive to me is the amount of time My WellMed physician spends with me, and you do the same thing with your patients.
3: Yeah, I I really do try to, and and we do a lot, a lot more time than your typical uh, provider can afford to give, and I think that allows us to get to know the whole patient and not just their diseases.
1: That's cool. Don't have a lot of time to talk about prevention, but you do a lot of that as well.
3: We spend an enormous amount of time on preventative measures.
1: Want information about WellMed? Want to be a WellMed patient? Call 210-614-WELL. Two one zero six one four. 614 well Well, thank you for sticking with us on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron. Take 10 follows each and every one of our Caregiver SOS On Air programs. And we are joined by Dr. Jamie Heisman, a nationally known psychotherapist, expert on not only caregiving but addictions as well. And ordinarily, uh, Carol Zerniel is with us as well. Uh, But Carol has a special assignment she's on and is not here with us in the studio. So me, Ron Aaron, Dr. Jamie will carry on. And do the best we can without her. So, Dr. Jamie, we are in a society where 10,000 baby boomers turn 65 every single day. Uh, And that will go on through like twenty seventeen, eighteen, nineteen. 18, 19, I don't know how many more years. That's a lot of people. And now if you factor that out a few years from now, that's a lot of people who probably should no longer be driving.
4: Well, yes and no. Let me first clarify before we get into this discussion, which is very important, very meaningful, is that um, I've seen 87-year-olds, 60-year-olds, and I've seen 60 year old 87-year-olds. So um, my dad, who goes to work every day, he is probably of the 60-year-old ilk, and he can drive so well, it's not funny. But then you put me behind the, the, the steering wheel, and, and nobody wants to drive with me. And uh, I'm quite younger. So I don't. I hesitate to call it an age issue. I do call it a condition issue. And to your point, there is going to be a lot of people who will be driving, unfortunately, with levels of dementia, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, issues that really cloud the mind. And there's many, many, many family caregivers there who are just afraid to even approach this issue and guide the transition of their loved one. From driver to passenger.
1: Now, I'm I'm glad you bring up that it isn't necessarily an age issue. You live and work in Florida, where age is obviously a consideration because so many folks have moved there in their later years, and it's a hot issue, is it not, in Florida, uh, trying to set an age on driving?
4: Oh, it is. It's an incredible hot issue. Um, uh, We have a doctor who's a phenomenal doctor at one of our clinics here. He's absolutely 82. I have never seen a mind that astute and that amazing. But then again, he'll have patients that are 62, 63, that he'll have to have the conversation that, that certainly we'll be speaking about eventually on this particular segment. So I really don't want everybody to get pigeonholed into that. I do think good testing at the state level uh, really will weed out those who can and who cannot. But also there's so many other reasons. First of all, I would like to tell you a few reasons why, unfortunately, family caregivers don't do this. Don't try, to take, anger, don't try to take the keys. They have take responses from their loved ones. Um, they have feelings of guilt of taking their loved ones from independence to dependence. They have anxiety about how the transportation needs are going to be met. How do we get our loved one around? Uh, caregivers have a lack of knowledge about how to determine when driving safety is compromised. And there's really not a whole lot of support. Family caregivers usually don't get together in unison and can make this decision. So that's what we're left with as the condition behind what do I do to take the keys away from my loved one.
1: Mentally, psychologically, and both physically, what does it take to drive? You do need uh, certain physical attributes and mental acuity.
4: You do, and you need awareness, and you need to be able to uh, uh you know to be spot on in terms of all, all looking and, and understanding everything and, and and just you know it's it 's something I believe deeply that it that tests can be done, and you can probably have many eighty and ninety year old drivers driving and many sixty and seventy year old <laughs> taken off of the roads. But uh, but there is certainly has to be a minimum requirement.
1: So having said that, uh, how do you broach that subject? And I can give you, and I've mentioned this before on Caregiver SOS on air, uh, a situation involving my dad, who my mom broke both of her wrists one day. She was in the hospital for uh, several days. Uh, my dad would drive to see her. Uh, And on one day, he had three separate accidents and complaints to the hospital administration about a guy who was pulling out of the driveway onto a busy street and never looking, just pulled out and off he went. So we were concerned, and we uh, called in the hospital social worker, met with my mom, my brother, and me, and said, we need a strategy here to uh, get my dad not to drive. And my mom was all for it. They'd been married about 60 years at the time, uh, but she was 100% on board. So my dad comes in. Unfortunately, uh, the social worker came from the school that believed everybody over the age of 60 is deaf, so she was yelling at him, which was a little off-putting. But she said, Saul, we're worried about you. Your driving has caused some concern. We know you've had some accidents. Uh, We think uh, it's time for you uh, to stop driving. Well, it was like a kid who'd been nailed with his hand in the cookie jar, and you could see his body language became so defensive. Now, what do you think my mom said?
4: Oh, I bet she just couldn't face it and jumped on his side.
1: Absolutely. What are you all talking about? Now, we'd been through this with her privately. What are you all right. talking about? Saul is a fabulous driver. I'd go anywhere with him. He's been driving me all these years. Of course he can keep driving, and we lost the battle at that point.
4: Well I'm sure you did, and don't forget, Mom is also, how do I say this, without diagnosing, but at, at some point in time, you're almost hostage to your loved one, too, because at the end of the day, the kids will go home and who has to bear the brunt of, of salt? Right. right. My mom. Mom.
1: And so... so the
4: deal? And just so you know, Ron, and, and you bring up a great point, and I'm a social worker, so I would love to think that social workers were the best for this particular task. Um, but to be perfectly blunt with you, um, I'd like to say no. I don't <laughs> think they are. Uh, I think the person with the most therapeutic bond to the loved one that you're actually taking the keys with is the way to go. My strategy... And the strategy, which I believe is best if you're going to actually approach a situation, is that the, all the family members look and determine from observable behavior and make a list of why they believe their loved one should not be driving any longer. Now, when they do that, they should do nothing with that piece of paper. Certainly never approach your loved one with it because the concept of the messenger always getting killed is a real one. And I think that the family caregivers need to take that to the licensed clinician, who I would hope would be the physician, a primary care doctor or neurologist, and say, look, you two are on the hook, doc. You treat this man or woman. And frankly, they're really not capable of driving. And here's all the reasons why. But we do not want to be like mom and put in the position of the messenger getting killed. So it's you, doctor, who needs to impart this information. And we will support your decision and our loved one and get them to places on time.
1: Very interesting.
4: It's a a, a must. I, I will tell you, I've seen it happen all the time. If we take this underneath our own purview, if you will, and go to our loved ones, we will be thrown out, drawn, quartered, flayed, tossed out. There'll be passive aggression. There'll be fights forever. It just can't work if we as the caregiver are the messenger but if it's a medical decision based upon the doctors you know astute hopeful knowledge of the person he's dealing with and his liability or her liability then they impart it then the caregivers really look good because the caregivers are going to have to be the supportive elements and make sure mom or dad gets what they need to get not miss a beat and have the seamless
1: interesting now, you talked about this on uh, Caregiver SOS Teleconnection the other day, uh, which is a program offered by Wellmet at no cost where caregivers around the country can call in and listen and participate. Uh, if you're interested, by the way, just go to caregiversos.org, and you can get a list of all the upcoming topics. But, Dr. Jamie, what kind of response uh, do people give when you talk about this topic, and you have on many occasions?
4: Well, it's kind of like the same thing when they hit their forehead and said, wow, I should have had a VA. <laughs> <laughs> they, they, they say, I wish I knew. Because all too often what happens is they'll approach, they'll have a huge fight. You'll be robbing somebody of their independence. They'll be the bad person. Then they have to start playing games. Then they have to go and start hiding spark plugs or removing gasoline Yeah, my dad, my brother, somewhere. Uh,
1: my brother disconnected the distributor cap on his old Toyota. There you go. Yeah, so all of a sudden,
4: you have to, like, out—it's a bad saying, but I'm an addiction counselor—out dope fiend the dope fiends, You have to really start going into a non inauthentic place, a not not a place where anybody wants to go, and start playing games right. with a loved one who, right. who would have dementia. And to me, that sets a cycle in place that you just don't want to get involved with.
1: Uh, but in the end, letting them drive does pose a hazard.
4: Well, it does. And let's face it, too, Ron, the alternative, which is maybe having a little more time with a family caregiver, getting in the car with a loved one, having them. And remember, you have to delegate this and sit mm-hmm. down with every loved one so nobody's getting overworked here. But maybe that time together may just be, you know, just what the doctor ordered. Right. So in spite of the bad things happening, often good things can come from that.
1: You get the last word, and that's a really good point. Thank you, Dr. Jamie. If you want to hear these shows, by the way, both Take 10 and Caregiver SOS on air. All of them are available on iTunes at no cost to you. Uh, Just go to iTunes, look for podcasts, and type in Caregiver SOS on air, and they should all pop up, and you can subscribe so that every time a new show is put up, it will come right to you with a notification. Dr. Jamie, thank you. Thank you to Carol Zernio, our co-host, who's on assignment. I'm Ron Aaron. Caregiver SOS on air, 9.30 a.m., the answer.
0: You've been listening to Caregiver SOS on air. Presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation. Email suggestions and comments on this radio program to radio at wellmed.net. And join your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zerniel for another edition of Caregiver SOS On Air on 930 AM, The Answer.